Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. It's really interesting to me how much perspective matters in life. I don't know if, if you've ever really thought about it. You know, artists need perspective. Do you know that? To be able to create something that actually works. Now, I have to admit, I'm not a good artist. The best thing I did was in year eight, we had to do a, like a drawing of a galleon, uh, you know, a ship, and that was it. No more art for me. But, you know, if you're an artist, you would know something about perspective that I didn't know for years was true, that apparently you put the eyes in the middle of the head. I always thought you put them up a lot higher than that. It's probably why all my pictures of people look a bit odd. But perspective really matters if you want to be able to draw something beautiful. Even though I've seen thousands of faces, I hadn't really seen clearly in the right perspective the thing that I was actually seeing. As older children, did you ever, if you're old, who's old enough here to remember coins? Anyone ever seen a coin? (laughs) Right, now, this is going way back, I know, but as older children, we used to love playing tricks on younger children where you'd show them two coins like this. Maybe, you know, maybe I had the 50-cent coin. Uh, For me, it was a penny, actually. But uh, I had the 50-cent coin, and my younger sibling, brother or sister, had a $2 coin. And we used to love going, oh, now, which one do you want? And seeing them exchange the coin, because their perspective wasn't one that knew the real value of what they were looking at. Now we have grandchildren. And we live opposite a really lovely park, but to get there, we have to negotiate a really, our really busy street. And I've realised again the perspective that I've needed to gain in life, to be able to judge the distance and the speed and the direction of cars and to begin to teach that to my grandsons so that they could find their way safely and successfully across the road and then eventually in all of life. You see, perspective matters every day in our lives, doesn't it? It's even been said that sometimes the difference between a mountain and a molehill turns out to be just one of our perspective. So whether things are going well, or whether you're maybe a young mum battling with kids or a person with difficulties or a church leader just trying to do your best, or you or a loved one are facing a difficult medical diagnosis, Whatever is happening in your life, the truth is that perspective matters. How do these things fit into my life? What defines me? How do I handle life? But I don't want to just talk to you today about, you know, looking at your life with fresh eyes and, you know, seeing the best in every situation. I want to talk about something much more powerful than that. I want to talk about having a perspective of God that truly alters your perspective on your own life. I'm talking about a perspective of never being alone again, of never being without a reason for hope, of having the resources of an open heaven and of being able to know that your life matters and has ultimate purpose whatever mountains or molehills we may face. Would anyone here like to hear more? 
I want to look with you today at three perspectives of God we see in the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. If you've got a Bible there, you might want to open it up. We'll be going through it. This reading picks up immediately after the crucifixion, the death and the burial of Jesus that we remember every year on Good Friday. Let's read the perspective that Matthew, who is an eyewitness to these things, his perspective that he wrote. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, he's risen, just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. After the Sabbath, after the Friday, after the Saturday, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Jesus was crucified on Friday. Very early on Sunday morning, two women who'd been at Jesus' crucifixion go to look at the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They're going to the place where there are guards and there's a great big stone in front of a cold tomb. We know from the other Gospels that other women joined them and that there was a hope among them of being able to care for the body of Jesus as a final act of love and reverence. But Matthew just puts it this way. Matthew gives us this stark perspective on that Sunday morning. They were going to look at the tomb. After the agony of Friday, we have here the perspective that all humanity, we all have to face. As far as we know, humankind is unique in all creation in being aware from very early on in our lives of the morbid fact that death awaits us all. We try to avoid it as much as possible. We try to avoid it happening we try to avoid talking about it. We do all we can medically and other ways to delay it ever happening to anyone we care about. And yet the truth is, the real perspective is, honestly, death and the tomb awaits every one of us to whom life has been given. This is the human condition. And on this Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, the woman who Jesus had filled with life and hope, and the other woman with her, are going to look at the tomb. But at that tomb, they're met not with death, but with an entirely new, unprecedented perspective on life. We know that, don't we? We've just been singing about it. They're met with a messenger from heaven, a message that breaks into their world. It says there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. 
Into this place of death, a powerful message has come from heaven for them and for you and for me. Why even the messenger is so powerful that his entry includes a powerful earthquake, an appearance like lightning, and brilliance in his apparel, with strength to roll back a one to two ton stone, an awe-inspiring personal presence so that the guards who were there guarding death were on the ground quivering at his appearance of life. And folks, this is just the messenger. How much more powerful is the one who sent him on this errand of good news to these women? Jesus is not here. He's risen just as he said. The guards were so afraid of the messenger that it says they shook and became like dead men. You know, it's easy to think that we are strong, powerful men and women who control our own destiny. But it is, isn't it really also fleeting? In my business career, I had to deal with people who enjoyed the feeling of their own power at times. People who would enjoy to use the power of money or the first force of personality or position to rule over others. But you know, I also saw these very same people later when age and health and the impending grave was drawing closer. I remember one man who was so seemingly strong and belligerent, now holding on to the arm of his wife to steady him, emotional, shattered, weakened, sorry. And I saw our, how our perspective on ourselves can be just so misleading. Our human power is fleeting and fading. We need more than that to face the power of what's against us. If there is such power, then we need to know that power. The power of the one who's not only not afraid of death, who's gone through death on purpose for us and has risen to glorious life. That's the power we need. In John 10, 17 to 18, Jesus, talking about the death he came to die for our redemption, he said this, Listen to the power of these words. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Has anyone else in, yeah, amen. Has anyone else in all of history ever said anything like that and then backed it up in their actions? What is the perspective we see here? Death has been defeated and Jesus is powerfully alive. He died on purpose for you and for me to pay the price for our sins and to redeem our lives for God, but he is now powerfully, eternally living and victorious over sin, death and the grave. That's perspective. Can you see that perspective today of the living Christ? Do you know how wonderful and powerful he is? That's the perspective we need in our life to be those who know we walk through life now and even through death when that shadow comes with the living Christ and we overcome in life and in death through him. A little later in the passage, Matthew notes that Jesus' resurrection was an enormous problem for those who wanted him dead. And it opens up the issue of other theories about what happened to the dead and buried Jesus. This is honesty. The Bible is filled with honesty. Matthew, writing in the lifetime of all those concerned, is happy to put out there what he believes with all his heart and what he knows others were saying and doing. 
So Matthew tells us the perspective that the authorities who had wrongly condemned Jesus to death put on this problem of Jesus' body being missing and people beginning to say they'd seen the risen Jesus. Verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So here's the question. Here's the question for you and the question for me, the question for the whole world. Is Jesus alive now after his resurrection or is he dead? Which perspective is the true one? For only one of these two can be right. I don't have time this morning to go into all the details of why it's rational and sensible to believe the testimony of Matthew and the other eyewitnesses that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit himself will convince you in your heart that it's true. As he's convinced so many other very intelligent people over many centuries that this wonderful news is actually true. But I do have just eight quick grabs of why the resurrection can be believed. You see, Christianity is based on facts. I believe God is light. He brings everything into the light. We don't kid around about anything here. It's either true or it's not. If Jesus did not live and die and rise from the dead as an historical person at a point in time in a particular place, then Christianity is a sham. There's no doubt, of course, there is no doubt that Jesus lived. In fact, there's more evidence for Jesus' life than there is for the life of Julius Caesar. There's no doubt that he died at the hands of the Romans by crucifixion. But did he rise from the dead? So here are just eight lines of evidence that I can just quickly give you as grabs that Jesus did rise from the dead. Firstly, the empty tomb. You see, this is so relevant because the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead spread in a city that was hostile to that claim and would have done anything it could to squelch the growing Christian movement. The only thing they needed to do was to produce the body of Jesus. But they couldn't do it. It was risen. The second is the ridiculous idea that the disciples stole the body. That would require the removal of a huge one to two stone gravestone being rolled back out of its place and the carrying away of a dead body under the watch and hearing of highly trained and armed guards specifically there to do only one thing, stop them from doing that, by a group of frightened and hopeless disciples who are powerless, whose world had just fallen apart, who are in fear of their lives and it would have then required these otherwise sane people to live their lives and go to their deaths death based on saying that Jesus was alive while they knew he had, they had his rotting body. Thirdly, there's the testimony of many people who weren't part of this original group of disciples, like the brilliant scholar, a man called Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, whose life was dramatically altered in the moment he personally met the living Jesus Christ. He was out to kill Christians, but from that moment of meeting Jesus Christ, he was prepared to die for Jesus because he knew it was true. He'd met Jesus. Or like the 500 other people who met Jesus at once that Paul refers to, many of whom were still alive when Paul was writing about them. And this gives to his writings what, what people would call 
historical control, which means there's good reason to take seriously what he says because there were heaps of people around that could say, Paul, that's a lot of rubbish. There wasn't a group of 500 people who saw Jesus, but there was. The fourth is the remarkable, unsuppressible courage, power and joy of the disciples of Jesus and their willingness to be flogged, to be outcast, even to lay down their lives, to preach just one thing, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Just weeks after they'd abandoned him with, with fear. Fifthly, the type and the range of people who give testimony to this, from the women who had absolutely nothing to gain if this weren't true, to the hard-working, practical men like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James and the writer to the Hebrews who thought this was so important they gave their lives and they wrote whole books about it. Sixthly, the way the whole of the Bible, written by so many people over 1,500 years, miraculously from beginning to end, supports that what happened at Easter, including the resurrection of Jesus, was God's one-time rescue plan for us. The resurrection of Jesus brings together a myriad of prophecies into one amazing signpost for anyone with the interest to look. Seventhly, the testimony of people like me standing here today who say, I have met the risen Jesus and many other people here have. Millions have met him. And eighthly, and perhaps biggest of all, the fact that God has written eternity into your human heart. Perhaps that's the biggest clue of all. Why do we want to stay alive? Why do we want to not die? Because God has made us for life. And Jesus is revealed at Easter as the way, the truth and the life. And we'd love to talk to anyone who needs to wrestle with this more at Alpha on the 12th or on the 15th on that Thursday. We'd love to talk it through with you. The second perspective I see in Matthew 28 is so very personal. It's Jesus as our loving and merciful saviour. And this is our second perspective on God today. On Good Friday we see the love and mercy of God pouring out in full measure at the cross but we also see it continuing to find its way into every relationship that Jesus is continuing to have. We see his love for us and how he meets the women along the way. The angel has already given them the message so have a look at the passage and ask yourself why does Jesus suddenly meet with them himself? Did you notice that? The angels already told them what to do and suddenly Jesus is there meeting with them. The fact that women were the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus is often pointed to a good evidence for the truth of the resurrection because if you were making this up, there's no way you would have women as the first witnesses in, in first century AD because their testimony wouldn't be accepted. But Jesus didn't meet with them to prove that point. He met with them because he loved them. He was concerned for them in their fear and their confusion and he wanted to complete their joy himself. And if you'll meet with him, as they did, he'll show you his love and his concern for you too. That's our risen Jesus. Verse 9, suddenly Jesus met with them. Greetings, he said. I tried to look up the meaning of the word greetings. It sort of means hi. <laughs> hi. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. We see his love in how he meets the women and his mercy in how he meets his disciples. 
Did you notice that the angel called those men disciples, but that Jesus called them something else? What did he call them? Brothers. And he says he'll meet them in Galilee. Have you ever let someone down? Or worse, have you ever treated someone far, far worse than they deserved and later felt just horrible about what you've done? And then to your amazement, you find they haven't written you off. They haven't spoken to anyone about it. They haven't been bad-mouthing you. They're not holding a grudge. They haven't plotted any revenge. And they go out of their way to be kind to you and help you and treat you in a way that shows their love for you is undaunted. What do you call that? You call it mercy. And it's one of the sweetest things in the world. And that's what Jesus shows. What he leads with in his relationships. Mercy. They all deserted him in his greatest hour of need. He knew they would. Just as he knows we'll fail many times too in our lives. You may have spent a lifetime up until now ignoring him or deserting him or betraying him or denying him. But if you'll come to him, he will show you mercy. That's who he is. Can I ask you, do you know his love and mercy today? His love and mercy softens our hearts, gives joy to our steps and lasting peace to our troubled souls. Do you know his love and mercy today? And thirdly, this is our final perspective I'd like to share before we leave this passage today. It happens back in Galilee. See, the story of Jesus had travelled from Galilee to Jerusalem and to the cross. We could well ask the question, why go back to Galilee as both the angel and Jesus instructed? Well, I think there's two reasons. Firstly, this one. Just after the Last Supper, if you turn back to Matthew 26, Jesus had prophesied what was about to happen to him and to his disciples, to these same disciples. In verse 31 of Matthew 26, he says, This very night, you will all fall away on account of me, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. How real to them must have been this message of the angel. This really is Jesus back with them. Only these 11 men and Jesus knew he'd told them. He'd meet them back there in Galilee after his death and resurrection and so he would. Because, you see, God always keeps his promises. Not even death can stop the promises of God. You can rely on that. If God has made a promise, he'll keep it and all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And secondly, Jesus went back to Galilee with them because this is where it all began. In Matthew 4, we read that Jesus began his ministry as the prophet Isaiah had said 750 years earlier that he would when he said that a great light would come into this world in Galilee of the Gentiles. And Matthew 5, Jesus stood on a hillside in Galilee and he proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven was coming to earth. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus takes his disciples back, his brothers now, back to this place on a mountainside after all they've been through and all that they've done. As though the cross itself and the resurrection were only a necessary stepping stone to what Jesus is really on about. 
to see the blessing and the authority and the wisdom and the love of the kingdom of God flowing in every life and in every place. Here he is with his disciples, his forgiven and his loved brothers, and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What's our third perspective of the risen Jesus today? His passionate disciple maker. His call is not just that we would believe some things theoretically or in case they're true, but to believe in him so that we would become a disciple who is involved in making disciples. He's passionate disciple maker. So here he is. He's powerfully alive. Has your perspective been open to see him today in your life with all his power? He's our loving and merciful saviour. Do you value him? How costly it was that he, for him to be able to come to you right now today, 2,000 years later, and offer you his love and his mercy. Do you value him? And thirdly, he is the most passionate disciple maker you'll ever meet. Are you helping him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Easter Sunday morning. Lord, it's, um, it's not easy to stay unemotional when we consider the gravity and yet the wonder and the joy of what we're talking about. There could be nothing better for all of us here and all of us in our families, all of us on this planet, to know the risen Jesus. For he is the only way, truth and life. We come this morning to worship you, Lord Jesus. We pray that our perspectives will become brighter and brighter, that we will see you, Lord, more clearly for who you are. You are wonderfully, powerfully alive for all of our lives and for eternity. You are wonderfully loving, incredibly merciful and passionate about making disciples. And may we as a church fellowship continue to be framed by that perspective, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.